you have a lovely teapot full of tea. What are we drinking here? We are drinking Christmas tea. <laughs> and that was on my special request. Because <laughs> I love my Christmas tea. All right, so I'm going to try it. I haven't tried this one. Yeah, I think it's the Organic Stash brand. Oh, thank you so much for yeah. my pot of tea. So we're sitting here in your beautiful kitchen. And uh, you have your son sleeping upstairs. So are we under the clock here? <laughs> Time will tell. All right. <laughs> well, the last one I did, there were cats and dogs running around. So uh, yeah, we might have a kid okay. running around here too. Yeah. That's all good. <laughs> And thank you for listening to another episode of Talking with Grownups. I'm your host, Elaine Capagines. This podcast is brought to you by The Holistic Parent, a hub for natural health and wellness information geared towards families. For more information about The Holistic Parent, please visit our website at theholisticparent.ca. So today, I am here with the lovely Suzanne. We have worked together quite a bit, actually, this last year. Um, and I'm, I'm very excited that you're on uh, with me today, because I think what you bring to the table is fascinating and I've learned a lot from you this last year so why don't you tell our listeners um, kind of who you are what you do what, what's your story Suzanne okay thanks Elaine <laughs> I am Suzanne Dietrich I'm a registered dietitian and I have two locations one in Waterloo Ontario and the other in Guelph Ontario and what I specialize in is working with people primarily women to help them develop a healthy relationship with food so whether that be um, people who are trying to move away from chronic dieting or uh, people who are looking to towards recovery from an eating disorder. And I also provide nutrition counseling for, for everyone else too, but that's my primary focus. So you call yourself an undiet dietitian. How, how on earth did you get into this? How did you discover um, this kind of direction? Yeah. So I, I, I kind of say I'm a non-diet dietitian or an anti-diet dietitian. And when I did my degree in food and nutrition at Ryerson University, I didn't learn a lot about eating disorders. I learned a lot about helping people figure out how to eat if they have heart disease or how to tube feed people, all stuff that's really important in terms of feeding people um, with a certain disease state. But I didn't learn a lot about eating disorders. And, um, and then during my, I was required to do a one-year uh, internship to become a dietitian after that. And I did at my one placement at Homewood, which is a, a mental health facility in Guelph, Ontario. And I did it in the eating disorder program. And there I uh, learned all about eating disorders. And I was introduced to a concept called intuitive eating. And uh, that's developed by two dietitians, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Reich. And I hadn't heard of it before. And it's basically um, a philosophy of normal eating. And it's based on 10 principles. And it just really resonated with me because I was doing my internship and trying to give people advice on how to lose weight. And it didn't feel right. I felt like I was food policing people's food. And um, so this is more of a freeing approach in and it just resonated a lot with me. So it's interesting that you say normal eating. Mm -hmm. So essentially you have studied normal 
eating is that a, that's a funny thing to study yes that <laughs> <laughs> there there we need practitioners that they're studying and teaching us how to eat normally that's mm-hmm. bizarre it is pretty bizarre <laughs> and i think where it's come from is that we have become so overwhelmed with all of the nutrition information that's out there and it's fabulous all the advances in science but at the same time it's confusing you know what we might have eaten 20 years ago or um tried to provide for our children 20 years ago is very different than um, the information that we have right now Mm -hmm. and so I think it's confusing for a lot of people and uh, I think there's so much external sources of information out there that we've moved away from trusting our internal guide our body uh, to tell us how to eat and so intuitive eating is a lot about um, teaching people how to trust their body again Mm-hmm. and what it's the messages it's giving them around food so really it is the it's the intuition part that you're looking to tap into yes and it's it's about if you think of babies when babies are born um they're crying when they're hungry and um you know if if you're someone who's nursed a baby before if you've ever tried to nurse a baby that isn't hungry <laughs> they are not gonna nurse nope, not. <laughs> um, because they are not hungry or a toddler when a toddler is hungry they are they're losing their cool right so um babies and toddlers we are born with the innate ability to recognize when we're hungry and also to recognize when we're full So one of the parts of intuitive eating is going back to that hunger and fullness. As we grow up, sometimes if we are permeated with messages from our culture about dieting or uh, losing weight or how to, you know, eat the right balance of things, sometimes we can move away from trusting those hunger and fullness cues. Or if we're going on a diet or trying to lose weight, then that can start to sabotage some of those hunger and fullness cues. And we might not be able to recognize them anymore, let alone trust them. So that is partly what it's about. It's also about um, moving away from the diet mentality and, um, you know, putting the goal of weight loss on the back burner. Mm -hmm. Because often we find that the goal of weight loss can trigger restrictive eating, sometimes over-exercising and um, not properly taking care of ourselves. So then that, for some people, can lead to binging afterwards. 85 to 95% of studies show that when people lose weight, they gain it back within three years, if not more. So intuitive eating is about putting um, the weight loss goal on the back burner. I say to my clients that uh, with intuitive eating, you, you might gain weight, you might lose weight, you might stay the same right so um, it's about helping someone move towards their set point weight but at the same time I don't know what people's set point weight is right right. right? a lot of these tools that are out there to tell us what we should weigh are actually population-based tools and so 80% of our weight is determined by genetics Mm -hmm. so we we don't have the test to figure out exactly what someone should weigh so I mean in terms of like when you're talking about standards like BMI seems to be kind of the the gold standard if you go to a doctor's office they you know take your weight and your height and then they map it on this little chart and then you fit into a color range so are you saying that it is bmi maybe not necessarily the best tool to determine where our healthy weight is yes i would yeah. agree with that yeah because it what the bm if the bmi is a population based on a population mm-hmm. study and it's looking at people's health risks at a certain bmi um and they health and death 
death risks as well. So it showed certain people in a certain part of the BMI, in a certain range of the BMI, had higher or lower risks of developing certain diseases right. or not developing it. So it's about risk of developing diseases. It's not about what somebody should weigh, mm -hmm. okay? And we know that people who are thin get ill, get diabetes. We know that people who are larger get ill, get diabetes, right? So um, it's not just weight that determines our health risks. Yeah. This is, it's just such a, it's such a huge topic. So um, the reason that you and I started working together was um, in the summer issue of, of our 2018 publishing cycle, we did an entire issue on body positivity with the lens of the body positive movement. And this is how you and I connected and you were actually a contributor to that magazine um, on intuitive eating. And then we've also subsequently done an article together on food in our schools all with sort of that lens of intuitive eating. It is such a huge topic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think it's so important, not even just from a parenting standpoint, because that was where I come at this from, um, the idea of, of stopping the cycle of negativity. And so we're not passing it down to our children, but it goes, it's so far beyond that. The conversation is so large and it's so complex one of the things that I said to you was if I was going to get any pushback on an issue, it was going to be the body positive issue. And actually, surprisingly, it was it was not surprisingly, it was extremely well received and I didn't get a lot of negative comments. Um, I did, you know, there were a couple um, and most of them were geared towards why are you promoting obesity? So part of the issue was that we gathered together a segment of women um, to put on the cover and they were of different sizes, different shapes. And I just wanted to put beautiful women on the cover of a magazine. And to have somebody say, well, by doing that, you're promoting obesity is, is just, it's such a misunderstanding of what the entire issue is. Can you speak to that? Can you speak to the idea that this movement or this mindset shift is actually promoting un something that's negative? Mm -hmm. That's a big question. <laughs> it's a big question. It is. It's, it's a, a big question. Yeah. So the, the way I looked at it is it's promoting all bodies, all different shapes and sizes. It's not promoting um, a certain size. It's mm -hmm. just promoting different shapes and sizes. And um, unfortunately, the word obesity has a lot of stigma attached to mm -hmm. it and um the people living in larger bodies also have a lot of stigma that they receive yeah. whether it's through their friends their family members or the healthcare providers yeah. statistics tell us that people who live in larger bodies go to the doctor less yeah. often and um Often things that I've heard many of these people say is that I'm not going to go to the doctor. They're just going to tell me I need to lose weight. Right. And so it's almost like every 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 medical issue becomes something about their right. weight. And that was interesting. That was an interesting conversation. It was with one of the other practitioners. She gave me the example of, you know, if, if you have somebody who lives in a smaller body and somebody with a larger body, they walk into the doctors with a complaint about their knee. The, the woman who's in the smaller body, they will, you know, ask about their, you know, have you had an injury? They'll maybe do an MRI or an ultrasound. They look at the woman who's in the larger body and say, well, you have knee issues, lose weight. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that, that sort of never occurred to me, but there is really this like bias that exists in our society right now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we can't judge people's health behaviors by their 
what they look like. Mm-hmm. It does not tell us anything, you know. So, and people can be healthy at any size, mm-hmm. right? Even people that are thin can be unhealthy too, right? But there's this kind of preconception that okay, that person must be healthy because they're thin. That's not necessarily true, and it just exhibits the own the person's bias who is looking at them, mm-hmm. right? Is that something that can be? changed um i know there is this body positive movement i mean you go on uh you know any of the social media and you look up body positive there is a ton of information there's a ton of images out there that's trying to promote a more positive body image um do you see this moving in the right direction or are we i think it is slowly moving in the right direction i'm proud to say that in my field i have seen a lot of dietitians who have started to take this approach in their practice so i'm i'm pleased to be part of a profession that is doing that um it is slowly coming um i think there are some people that are using it um improperly though um you know, as people say, co-opting language, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I saw recently on one healthcare practitioner's um, website, the non-diet approach to weight management. The non-diet approach is not about weight management. It's about um, having a flexible relationship with food, um, with gentle nutrition, being curious about food, uh, moving our bodies for fun, um, taking care of ourselves in terms of our sleep and stress level, of course, we looked at the biochemical data to see where people's uh, different health factors are, but it's not about managing weight. So that's interesting to me, and, and we've talked about this before, is that there are other health indicators. And I think a lot of the time we focus on weight, but it's a, it's a larger picture than that. You can't judge whether somebody is healthy just by looking at them. Um, there are other, again, health indicators. So when you have a client who comes in I'm assuming that some of your clients do come in looking for weight loss or they're unhappy with their bodies and they're looking for that solution. Where where does that conversation for you start to try to get that mind shift away from weight and more towards health as an overall picture? Mm-hmm. So there's a few things that I'll do. Uh, one of them is to try and set some non weight related health goals, right? So it might be, you know, I had one client who said, Uh, I just want to be able to play basketball with my sons for longer than 10 minutes. Uh, I want to be able to bend over and tie my shoes. I want to be able to do a mini triathlon. Um, I want to have more energy. I want to move up the stairs, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So that's the first thing, setting non-weight related health goals. And then, um, so then we also have a conversation about their, their history with their weight and dieting. And sadly, um, some of the people I worked with have been dieting for 25, 30, 40, 50 and I, years. I, sadly, I don't think that's unusual. I think it in is, our society, that's that's not abnormal. <laughs> unfortunately, it's not. You know, I have I have one person who told me when they were six years old, they started putting less food in their lunch because they were told that they were their body was too big for them. So it's very sad. So so then what I'll do is I'll talk to people about, you know, what their history is around dieting and weight. And generally what happens is they tell me about this cycle of weight loss and, um, re, you know, often following a certain caloric intake, um, doing a lot of exercise for the point of calorie burning, and then um, being not able to sustain all that intense um, behaviors. And then and from there, it moves to uh, weight gain 
and disappointment and shame and guilt. And so it's, and then I would go through what's called the diet cycle and ask them if they can relate to that. And the diet cycle is usually it starts in a place of I don't feel good about myself. And so that can be for whatever reason, but for a lot of people, they might have been bullied um, in school for being fat, quote unquote fat, um, or by their parents or by their grandparents. And then they start the diet and then, you know, their body starts to tell them, okay, well, I'm getting cravings. I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling deprived, but then maybe they lose a little weight. And then the next step is, um, they break the diet because their internal hunger cues are telling them and their hormones are telling them that you cannot sustain this. Mm-hmm. So from there, you know, the next step of the cycle is um, just not feeling good about themselves again and feeling lack of control and sometimes the weight gain. And so I I often ask my clients, can you relate to this? And they usually say, oh, yeah, that's me. That's my life. And so, you know, I, I just try and point out, you know, has that been helpful? Can we can we put this weight loss goal on the back burner and focus on these other things and um, just share that the science tells us that it's actually health behaviors that make a difference in our health risk, mm-hmm. not the weight so much. So it is a hard process. And, um, you know, some of my clients I've been working with for over a year or, or longer because this is a long process. If you've been doing something for 20, 25 years or longer, it's going to take a long yeah. time to shift the mindset. Yeah, definitely. So is that your focus is really is mindset shifting and then finding some type of balance? Like, would that be to consider like we're at the end of our journey together it's it, I mean I guess there is no like end point but is that the ultimate goal is to sort of find this balance and this sort of peace of mind it's to find help them find a way of eating that's sustainable and um trusting of their own internal wisdom rather than external sources and to take away shame and guilt from eating and move them towards a place of you know a lot of my clients say well, I'm not going to love my body. I don't think I can love my body, but maybe I can feel neutral about my body. Maybe I can feel like, okay, my body was able to do this. My body was able to um, birth a child or my body was able to um, conquer a certain disease or um, raise my children or uh, take care of someone important in my life. Um, And so it's guiding them to maybe a piece of a a place of appreciation rather than... um, hate or disgust for their body. So again, sort of back to um, the quote unquote body positive movement. One of the criticisms that I continue to come across in my reading and my, you know, um, kind of delving into this topic a little bit, that the people who are, are talking about body positivity are promoting an unhealthy lifestyle and giving people permission to eat bags of chips and ice cream and just say, well, I'm okay with that because I have a, I have a good body image and I don't mind being larger. What do you have to say to those, that comment? <laughs> Cause that can't be an, un, that can't be an uncommon critique of this, of this direction. Yeah. Well, I don't think the body positivity movement is about, um, I think it's about respecting your body where it's at. Right. It's not saying go eat whatever. I mean, sometimes it might be go eat whatever if that's what you're feeling like, mm-hmm. right? But it's, in my opinion, it's still about doing what feels good with your body, for your body and um, making choices that feel healthy to you or feel good to you. And healthy might even be going too far for some people that are involved in the body positivity movement. I would disagree with that. Yeah. 
I think the thing is that a lot of people are um, somewhat ill with their relationship with food. And so by promoting these restrictive diets, whether a low carb diet or low fat diet or keto diet or what have you, these diets aren't sustainable. So people end up eating those foods anyways, because they can't sustain right. the other thing. And then that's where the emotions of shame and guilt come in, because now you failed at whatever diet you're attempting. Yes. And then this is what you're talking about, where the cycle comes yes. in. It's just to continue, whether it's no matter what diet you're trying, it, it's, it's just all part of the cycle. And I don't know if the body positivity movement has a statement about eating. Yeah. It's it's about respecting your body where it is and empowering people to, I'm just like looking at my yeah. uh, book here by Kathy Cater. She's a psychotherapist in the US and she, um, she has a book called Healthy Bodies called Teaching Kids What They Need to Know. And you know, one of her mission statements here is to empower boys and girls to resist unrealistic and unhealthy cultural pressures regarding body image, eating, fitness, and weight. And I think that's what the body positivity movement is about too. And does that align with your mission statement as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we do hear a lot in the news about an obesity epidemic, um, especially with our children. Um, you know, there does seem to be a trajectory of larger bodies happening right now. A, is that a concern for you in in this space? Is it even a thing? Is it, <laughs> again, big, big topic here, but. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't even know if it is a thing. Yes, I know we talk about the obesity epidemic, but, and I, to be honest, I haven't looked at the literature yeah. in a while. Um, but what I do know is that we need to pe look at children's growth trends, okay? If a child is born larger, then we shouldn't be trying to make them smaller, okay? We should be following their growth patterns and um, seeing if they're following along their growth trajectory. If they start to lose weight very quickly or gain weight very quickly, that can be of concern. It is normal around two years of age for that um, trajectory to, to go up a little bit, also around puberty. Unfortunately, what has happened, in my opinion, is that these strategies to prevent obesity have the potential to cause more harm to children and their relationship with food. And so there's been a lot of policing, whether it's through public health or um, um, well-meaning teachers or well-meaning parents, and um, it's caused this extreme fear around becoming larger yeah. or thinking that the person has a problem with their body because they are actually someone li living in a larger body. It's interesting to me because historically, the idea of dieting and policing yourself, it, it's relatively new. I mean, this is not something that people were concerned about a hundred years ago. The diet, like, the diet culture really started in the 19th century or yeah. in and around yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, But it's almost like the more we diet and the more the more the society is worried about dieting, it's it's almost going in the opposite direction. It's it's counterintuitive. Like you think that the society is so worried about health outcomes, but it's actually the opposite. It almost seems like as a society, we're all getting more unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Like there's more rates of cancer and heart disease. And like, is there any explanation for this? Like, it just seems very counterintuitive to me. Well, I mean, and when we look at what is actually the, 
the indicator of health or the risk of health. It's um, the highest risk of health is living in poverty, living in unsustainable housing, poor housing, not having access to medical care or education. Those are the big factors when it comes to health. And we don't necessarily think that's a North American problem, but that's that's a myth. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of people living in this country, in this city, in this province that are struggling with those things, living with in in very poor conditions, bug infested apartments. You know, it's an absolute reality. And so so those those are the biggest um, risk factors for health. If we move away from that, which is often what we hear um in the media or, you know, more middle class and upper class society, right? Then it goes back to personal health behaviors that is um, put to blame for a lot of these things. But personal health behaviors or choices, um, you know, smoking, of course, would be one that there's a lot of science behind, but um, they're not the biggest risk factors for health. It's those big picture things which aren't big picture to some people, it's their their reality, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And until we focus on those things, that that's where I think we need to put our, our talk and our money towards um, improving the economic situation for the other people in our neighborhoods, in our cities. But realistically, these factors are not the ones that are making the headlines. No. It's the, it's the obesity epidemic and it's the, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it's unfortunate because I think there's a large chunk of the picture that's just completely being missed when we're talking about what health actually looks like. Exactly. And so when, you know, when you take that to, you know, a level that some of us might be familiar in in school, you know, when you have children who are sent to school with food that they received at the food bank, and then um, they're criticized, the parents are criticized about what they're sending in their child's lunch, you know, that's something that the child should never be exposed to, right? Mm-hmm. And they're being nourished in the best way possible that their their parents or their guardians are able to nourish them. Yeah. So, but this this and, and I'm I'm glad we sort of switched to schools a little bit here, and we're talking we're going to talk a little bit more about um, children as well. But um, this seems to be I mean I don't ever remember as a kid being shamed or even talked about what was in my lunch. It was just not it was not a conversation. I there was no way that a teacher would have sent something home with me saying that was unhealthy. That's just not something that happens, but it's happening now. Um, You know, you hear all the time about parents getting notes home about, you know, this is not healthy or their kids saying, well, I wasn't allowed to eat that because my teacher said it wasn't healthy or guidelines or recommendations, even um, what food should be eaten first. Mm -hmm. And this is, but this is all kind of new. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know, maybe in the past five, 10 years, I think it's yeah. come out. Yeah. Is this coming down from like, is this like a public health? Is this the education? Is this like the school boards? Like, where does this where is this even coming from? I think it's both. Yeah. 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 I think it's both. And I think it's coming from the um, quote unquote obesity ep- epidemic yeah. epidemic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, everybody I think at the end of the day, everybody's just trying to do what's right. I don't, there's no, there's no malice in any of this. It's just, do you think it's misunderstanding? Is it a, a societal bias that we're sort of dealing with? Like, is there a root cause of this, of this trajectory, I guess? Um, I think it's partly, yeah, yeah. I think it's societal pressure and philosophy that, you know, being larger is, is not a healthy way to be and um 
that the person who is larger has some personal responsibility, poor choices that they made. That's why they're in a larger body. And, and so that's, in my opinion, completely incorrect. And so they're trying to prevent that, I think. And so then, yeah, so it's societal pressure. But I think the, the harm is that some of these rules are too strict for kids. And so, you know, the, you have kindergarten students who are not going to take cookies that they got from their lunch for the, that they made with their grandma because they have chocolate chips in them right and so um like you said it's not coming from a place of malice it's coming from a place of concern but i think that you know following ellen satter's division of responsibility in schools and that is that the parents get to decide what their child is bringing for lunch and the children get to decide if they're going to eat it and how much they're going to eat it. And the teachers, the school gets to decide where they're going to eat and when they're going to eat. And that's it. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it has a lot of science behind it. Too. It does. It's, but it's a nice, it's like, it's nice to sort of know what your responsibility is and where that line is and where that line is being crossed. I mean, the other pressure too is, um, a lot of corporations and capitalist society, right? We're t companies are trying to sell people products mm -hmm. that they're trying to convince them that they need because there's something wrong with their body. And that's just a we, that's just the consumer society that we live in. But... Yes, yeah. absolutely. And there is also um, the pharmaceutical industry is also in this as well too. There is obesity drugs out there, right? So um, there's lots of factors that are influencing these philosophies that people have, whether it be individual or at a larger level. Um, so going back to talking about children um, and obviously, you know, being a, a, a hub for parenting, where do our children fit into this picture? Us as parents who have grown up with this type of messaging, with this messaging of dieting and, and that being in a larger body is, is not healthy. How do we stop that cycle? That we are not going to be passing these messages down to our children and then subsequently grandchildren and future generations. Well, I think the first thing to do is as a parent to um, really delve into some of your own views about your body and body image and potentially work with a professional or start to read some of the literature around intuitive eating or health at every size or there's a great book called Body Kindness um, and kind of investigate um, as a parent your own, your own thoughts around this and your own comfort around your body and food. And then from there, again, it goes back to Ellen Satter, just recognizing that our children are born with an innate ability to understand when they're hungry or when they're full and to trust that. So that means when um, we make a meal for dinner, ideally we want it to be something that is going to be satiating and satisfying, right? So making, you know, plain white rice with white fish and um, broccoli and no condiments on it or any fat at all is not going to be very satiating to mm -hmm. most people. And so um, it means that we, as parents, we have the decisions 
about, you know, what we're offering our children. And it's our job to feed them nutritiously. That doesn't mean all the time. We can offer them a nutritious meal, potentially with dessert, and then it's their choice if they want to eat it or not. And and then just kind of letting that go, which I know is very, very hard. Yeah. Um, because sometimes kids are going to eat a lot and sometimes they're not going to eat a lot. And sometimes we're worried about, oh, are they getting enough protein? Did they get enough vegetables to eat? But usually it balances out. And sometimes we have to get creative of how to put some of those foods in if we have someone that's a picky eater kids on average for example with trying a new food it can take 10 to 15 times before they actually start to like it so um you know continuing to offer that food in different ways and just let things go if they don't want to have it also to just um you know offer them three meals a day and balance snacks and um treats are part of it too Um, so maybe you're offering dessert, maybe dessert is included in the meal and they can eat it whenever they want. They can have one serving and then they're done and the rest of the food on the table, they can have as much as they want. That's kind of the philosophy. Also just encouraging movement and sleep and, you know, just fun in your life too. And I would say just, um, being a role model that those are the important things that are going to make a person healthy or feel good about themselves. And I'm glad you said move uh, when we're talking about movement here, because there is also a piece of this of of intuitive movement Mm -hmm. as well. Taking away the pressure of you have to exercise because it's, you know, exercise 30 minutes, three times a week or whatever the whatever the recommendation is, taking that out of the equation and just doing something you love and moving because it makes your body feel good. That's, that's just this whole other kind of piece to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And most kids like to move, right? And so just allowing them to do that. I have one son and he's just moving all the time. So sometimes we move the chair away for him to have his dinner because he just likes to be moving around all the time. And so it's just honoring that. And I think also um, doing something that you love, whether it's horseback riding or gymnastics or bowling or whatever and then you know role modeling role modeling that to your kids too that this is what I like to do and rather than I'm doing this to burn calories trying to change my body because that's what I think there is a mindset about well I go to the gym because I'm burning off x number of calories and you always hear like oh I hate going to the gym I'm dragging myself to the gym like it's it's almost like this this thing that you don't want to do but you make yourself do it anyways and that's not that's not sustainable that's you're not going to force yourself to do something you don't love you know i want to do something that i enjoy doing that i look forward to doing i don't and i've done that you know forcing my getting a gym membership and forcing myself to go because i felt like that was what i needed to do but it's it is it's a mindset shift and it's a it's a good one (laughs) yeah And I think the other important thing too, when it comes to raising body confidence kids is just watching the comments, you know, watching what they're, they're watching on TV or listening to what they're, they're saying about different people's bodies, you know, and so just, it's just being curious and just kind of sharing the message that all bodies are good bodies, um, rather that there's something wrong with someone's body. Yeah. But you have to think of, you know, a little kid sitting there hearing their mom complaining about going to the gym and still going every single day, like that's it might not be a direct message of like I don't like my body but you have to think about what your children are taking from that message that yeah so um again getting back to our children and talking about nutrition and when you're talking about creating nutritious meals there's so much conflicting information on what is healthy and what is not healthy and it's always changing when I was you know growing up in the 80s fat was like the enemy like everything was low fat no fat 
then it's it was this shift of like protein everybody needs to eat like crazy amounts of protein and now it's gone almost a complete 180 where it's vegan it seems to be sort of the conversation that everybody's having like it there's so much conflicting information out there mm -hmm. how does a parent decipher this information and create something that they're comfortable with yeah it's 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 overwhelming i i can't even keep up with all the no. stuff and that's what my profession is um i think that as a parent, you have to figure out what is actually sustainable for you. And, uh, you know, is it is it sustainable to be cooking vegan meals all the time that are balanced? Okay, if it is, that's fabulous. Uh, if it's not, then um, just just focus on having a balance of this, the main macronutrients, right? So carbohydrates, protein, and fat, and, you know, vegetables and fruit, you know, that's what I always say is a balance and it has to be sustainable because, um, and it has to be satisfying for your children as well too. So the, I know it's hard, um, but I would stick with kind of one reputable source and go from there rather than the, you know, one, one off study here, one off study there yeah. and um, making sure that the person that you're listening to is actually a nutrition professor, professional, not someone that, you know, it's taken one course or read one book on things. Sure. And, and that's where we get back to, we've had conversations with other people that I've interviewed about having reputable sources and just because somebody has a blog doesn't mean that they know what they're talking about because anybody can have a blog these days and write about anything they want and perpetuate that information and it's not necessarily good information yes yeah yes. so it's sort of having that critical thinking component absolutely absolutely if someone came to me and said what should i eat for um cancer i'd say well that's not my specialty area, right. right? So it's in, in talking to the person and really understanding what their background and their education is and their expertise. Is there a responsibility to educate our children about nutrition? And where does that responsibility lie? Is it with nutrition classes at school? Is it with the parents? Like it's where, where should our children be getting this information from? Well, I think that... Um, I think it would be a combination of both, um, but I think the important thing is how it is presented. And I also think that, um, so for example, instead of talking to, um, you know, say a kindergarten class or grade one class about carbohydrates and protein, you know, it might just be, um, what have you got in your lunch today? Okay, where was that grown? You know, do you, do you know, do carrots come from the ground or do... Um, are they do they grow on a tree right so taking it back to how do you how do you feel when you eat this you know do you feel like you've got lots of energy for that kind of focusing on that I do get concerned when I hear about people in grade six classrooms that are learning about the their daily caloric recommendations and they're being asked to track their food and check their calories and stuff and and I don't think it's it's not as simple as that we the amount of recommended calories doesn't work for every person. And I guess I fear that if we teach that to our children at too young of an age, it could become potentially an obsession, potentially a real concern, and potentially move into disordered eating or an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we don't always know how many calories people need. So yes, there is a part in terms of parents and in terms of the education system, but I think it has to be presented in with a curious way rather than, um, you know, that deep down into the science and to not have um, 
weight be a part of the conversation at all. The way that the conversations are happening around food now and getting back to whole foods, do you see that as a positive, a step in the right direction? Or is this just another conversation around diets and diet culture? Um, I mean, I won't disagree. I won't argue that whole foods aren't better and that um, when we're eating whole foods, we can be in charge of, you know, how much flavoring we put in, how much sugar we can put in, how much salt we can put in, all of that stuff, you know, that it is better for, um, you know, our environment generally to eat more whole foods than to have more processed foods. Um, but again, it goes back to what can the person handle, you know, so, um, we don't need to be fear mongering, you know, I have to eat, you have to eat whole foods all the time, you know, it's like incorporate as many food, whole foods into your diet as possible, you know, and here's some way to do that and, um, making it, you know, realistic for the person. But there is a financial component to this. Like there is, you know, (laughs) processed foods are... Are, are less expensive yeah. like this it's it's a, still a part of the conversation it's not as simple as just go and go to your farmer's market and buy all this great food and then cook it like there's there's so many other components to that absolutely absolutely and there's families that are working two full-time jobs you know if there's a dual income family or a single parent you know it's it's the reality is this is what they can put on the table and um there's many other factors besides just the abs- the actual food right it's like how much time do i have how much support do i have to to make this possible and this is all part of the intuitive eating conversation that it's not just food it's there's it's a larger more complex issue yes and i mean i don't think i mean i wouldn't say that um intuitive eating is a lot about social justice i think more um you know the bigger conversations about body positivity and health at every size um those are a lot about social justice as well the intuitive eating is is more about you know those principles where you know not dieting focusing on your hunger and fullness cues um challenging the food police um being satisfied with your eating coping finding other ways to cope with emotions without using food so it's intuitive eating i think is more on an individual level it's not so much i don't see it so much as a social justice level yeah but absolutely yeah it's like what can you do what is your ability and um you know don't feel bad if you can't eat whole foods all the time where do you see this conversation going in the future where do you see your business as a non-diet dietitian going well, sadly, I see it um, growing. I mean, I shouldn't say sadly. I mean, it, it, you know, I, you know, it's kind of one of these jobs you want to work your way out of, right? I hope that the body positivity movement um, and the movements similar to that will allow people to um, have more respect for their body and um, seek assistance for to moving away from dieting and, you know, these 20, 30 years of external rules and getting help with that. So I do, I do see, you know, this, this movement growing, especially among health professionals. And if they're starting to portray um, and emphasize this message, then I do see this growing, which is a great thing. And then I'm hoping it's just done, you know, in 20 years and we can just focus on other things. Well, that's good timing. We have a little munchkin who just joined us. Hi. (laughs) That was perfect. Your mom just answered my last question. 
Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for inviting me into your home and we, and letting me drink your tea. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you so much, Suzanne. We'll talk soon. Thank you.